Director and five out of five on Wikifeed. Oh my god. I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and um, I'm only a four on Wikifeed. That's so embarrassing for it's, you. It's really devastating. See, I, I thought you were 4.5. You've gone down to a four. I guess I'm a, yeah, I'm somewhere in the four something range. Do you think about that every day? I would. Someone, the person I'm dating said, do you know that you're on Wikifeet? And my response was immediately, yeah, I'm only a 4.5. And they were like, okay, wow, that was more than I was expecting. And I said, Allison's a five. And were they like, of course. They were just like, wow, I've never thought about her feet. And I was like, yeah, but plenty of people have. (laughs) (laughs) Multitudes of people. You were feet of the day or something, right? I was. The day that our first book came out, I was also Wikifeet of the day. Was that the you're the high point of your career? Like you're done now? It has only been downhill <laughs> since then. <laughs> well, do you think? Do you want to explain WikiFeed for people who don't know? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean it's self-explanatory. It's a it's website a web- with uh, celebrity women's feet. So if I were to post a photo of my feet, like in Instagram right now, with by the end of the day, it would be uploaded to WikiFeet. Yes. And then like people could like look at it and vote on it, and like I don't know, it gives me joy. Yeah, you do. You you like rankings. I love rankings and I love to win. And that's like all you've been doing over there on Wikifeed is winning. It's honestly all I have. Um, <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a podcast about brutal honesty, female friendship, and completely unsolicited advice. Well, we have a really exciting episode for you guys, uh, fans of the pod and of my feet. Uh, <laughs> we are going to be talking to the writer of Bring It On. Yeah, Jess Benninger is here. To talk about her new podcast, All About the Mob. And later, we'll be talking all about hope in topics. Is it detrimental? Is it delusional? We don't know. <laughs> so sad. What a sad topic choice. I think hope is beautiful. Okay, we'll get to it. I don't want to give it away. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. April, Belgium. International. True international. True international. I don't think her actual name. I think she asked me. I think she came up with this fake name, which is fun. I love when they come up with their own fake name. I know. Name. I, it's either like either be anonymous or this very specific name yeah. that I clearly prefer my parents would have named me. <laughs> so April has a very interesting question. Uh, the basic, uh, the heart of it is, should I put my own needs forward and bear my scars from self-harm to get used to it and gain confidence while it's bearing the guilt of being a potential scary influence or should I cover up and feel at peace that I have not caused anyone harm? So she says that she works with young kids and teens and she feels guilty about exposing her arms, exposing her her scars from mental illness. Yes. She says, uh, I don't know what people my age will think of me, what assumptions they will make. I am feeling much better mentally, but the physical marks of mental illness are literally on my skin forever. Mm-hmm. In some ways, these scars are a reminder of what I've overcome and the things I didn't do. So I need and want to learn to accept them as a part of me and my story. I very much want to move past the fear of judgment, and I think the only way to do that is to face whatever happens, but I'm afraid of being responsible for giving other people awful ideas. I would never want anyone to hurt themselves as a result of seeing my scars. Huh. And I think that April really brings up a really interesting point of view uh, because she said, people don't often talk about self-harm. I think progress has been made with discussing eating disorders, depression, and anxiety online, but this is still very much a taboo subject. I realize it might be a triggering subject, but I think any advice would be appreciated by people in a similar position, even if only for one question. And I think that that's super true. I think Mm -hmm. that we've become very... um, open-minded and understanding in a lot of ways to other forms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but self-harm is still seen as a huge red flag, super dangerous and crazy and like, and and like she said, taboo. Yeah, I mean, specifically self-harm in the sense of like, 
of cutting yourself or like bruising. You know what I mean? Like a not because eating disorder is a form of self harm, but that has gotten I think a lot more depictions in media, and there's a lot more people that are out about it. Versus like I think when you see scars on someone's arm, it's like very jarring. Yes. Um, I. I used to cut myself. I We've talked about on the show. Both of us have self-harmed in myriad ways. Um, but, like, I don't have any scars from it. Uh, but I have seen, when I see other people, like friends of mine that have it, I'm trying to think if I've ever been upset. I haven't really. It's mostly made me feel um, almost like more like I can trust them in a weird way. Like almost like it feels like, oh, they've they've overcome something. They know like, you know, they they're going to understand mental illness. I don't see it and feel bad for them or I don't see it and feel like, oh, no, this person's crazy or this person's bad. It almost makes me be like, oh, you've you've really gone through something and you like are that you're proud to or that you don't think about showing them. Do you know what I mean? you, You made it to the other side. Yeah. And that like you you don't. You show them and you're not feeling like you have to hide them. And I, you know, but also I think that we're two mental health advocates who are like very accepting of that stuff. So I definitely understand April's hesitation, especially surrounding children. But I think that if you work with kids, then the best thing that you can do for them is to show that life is hard, but you can be okay. Mm-hmm. And like, what better way than to fully learn to grow and accept yourself? Mm-hmm. So I almost feel like letting yourself wear short sleeves, letting yourself be okay with your full body, mm-hmm. that's going to help your journey and help you reach a place of of happiness and stability that will only enhance how much you're able to help these kids Mm -hmm. you know like i think that by prohibiting your journey from like completion Mm -hmm. you're probably in a way doing them a disservice yeah i think you should have a a pat answer like something to say ready like i think if because kids ask about everything kids will be like why is your nose fucked up and your nose is perfectly normal they're very kids are mean but like i think you know you should have something ready where like if they say you know, uh, hey, what happened to your arm? Or like, what is that? Uh, you might want to ask a therapist or ta- or like try to figure out like what's the most succinct way to be like, I used to be sad and I did this, but now I'm not sad. And you know, like something where it's like- I also think it depends kid- on, on the age of the kid, right? So she yeah. says kids and young teens. So they think young teens, there's probably a different answer than like a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that is right. And I think that that can potentially be a way of getting to feel more comfortable and less guilty if you do have a planned answer mm-hmm. and like a planned um, way of like form of attack for this issue. Yeah, and uh, and um, to reinforce that like it's it's a- I sh- why do you show them? You know what I mean? So be like, I sh- I wear short sleeves and I show them because I have overcome and I'm proud of myself. And you, if you have struggles, should be proud of yourself. You know what I mean? Like a way to sort of spin, re- spin it, not spin it, but like a way to teach them a lesson while you're explaining, you know? Yeah. And in terms of like being a bad influence, that's so interesting that like someone seeing those scars you think will then cause them to go self-harm. Yeah. And- it can be triggering. It can. It can, but I also I I think that it's a coping mechanism mm-hmm. that some people have and some people don't. Mm-hmm. And so I I would be surprised if just seeing that is some is going to cause a kid who otherwise would never do that yeah. to do it. You know, like I think it is like a very personal thing, um, and something that's like a, a part of self discovery in a, in a weird mm-hmm. way. I um, stopped because I saw someone else. I stopped. The reason I stopped was in high school, I saw another girl that had cuts on her arm. And I was like, oh, that that's, looks awful. And then I was like, wait, I do that. And then I stopped because I saw someone else's scars. So there you go. Yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> I'd hope so. I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know, if, the, if April is worried, like, literally a true story from my life is exactly the opposite of what she's worried about. Yeah. And I mean, again, like, I think that there's, you know, it's all about what you're comfortable with, right? So maybe at the beginning, you're just wearing short sleeves, not at work, yeah. right? So in the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And then, like, as you get more comfortable with that, then you can start 
wearing them at work. You know, mm-hmm. I think that it's like, it's not like tomorrow you have to be like, these are my scars. Yeah, like, exactly. Um, but I think that you should work towards a place of like, like you said, like full acceptance of your history, of mm-hmm. what you've been through. And uh, the fact that like, you know, you should not be ashamed of any part of your body. I wonder too, if the a kid who is struggling with that, with self-harm, who maybe has their cuts on, you know, different, like hide, hide, hidden in different parts of their body or whatever, um, might feel like, oh, I can talk to April. Mm-hmm. Like see, like it might actually open doors where you're like able to help more. Absolutely. Um, and, and people can't know that they can come to you for that help unless they see that you're like thriving and living your life and like have overcome. And I think that every time that you walk around with your arm showing, you're destigmatizing a taboo thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that there's like so much shame and like you said, like guilt around it. But if you walk around and you're like, this is my story, this is my history and I'm still here, like Mm -hmm. that's so powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if if you are a person listening, like there there is there is hope, there is help, there is, you know, like there are things you can do. And like April is clearly an example of someone who is like taking is like really cares and has like taken this past and a worked, success story yeah and all but also like works with kids and teens and like is that thoughtful and cares about like what the reaction will be or what will happen you know like i think it's it's like um it's not it's this reminder that it's not forever that like what you're going through is not forever yeah yeah it's a part of her past which is hopeful for people who want a different future Mm-hmm. To know mm-hmm. that that you could make those changes, and I do think that she's right that there is a uh, the openness about other past mental health behaviors that there isn't about self harm. People don't talk about it because they think it's. Uh, I think it's hard for people who haven't done it to understand. Right, because the main thing is that it is not the same thing as suicidal behavior or tendencies. It's actually no. the opposite. It's a way to cope with life to stay alive. Right. And it's also, uh, I think most people are not into pain. <laughs> like, I think most people would be like, why would you ever cause yourself pain? I'm not into pain, but I still did it all the time. <sighs> well, like, it's a release of pain or well, whatever. Because it's, it's like it, the, when the emotional pain is too much, then it can be, a, it can be like a distraction. Right. And, and it can sort of like bring you, bring you, uh, calm you in a yes. weird way. But it's it's not the right way to do that because then you get infections and you're opening yourself up to like it's that's just, also you assuming that all self harm is cutting and that's not true. Yeah. I just mean it's not it's not good. It's I'm not, not a promoting good way. it. I'm just saying that there's like various levels of it. Yeah. There's like you being in a conversation where you're uncomfortable and you're pinching your arm. Yes. You know, like that that is the same that comes from the same type of coping mechanism. Yeah. But there's also better ones. Is yes. what I'm saying is don't. <laughs> Definitely. This is not the answer. Like there, uh, there are much better coping way, like ways to cope. Like doing heroin also, is a way to cope, but we don't. But I also think that I think that if you are someone where that is something you start to do, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I did it since I was a toddler. Like, it doesn't mean that you're like so fucked up. No, you can easily find another. But that's coping what I'm mechanism. saying. Like, I think that there is this thing around it where it's like, okay, so people struggle. This is like this level of struggling, mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And then people who self harm, whoa, you're in a totally different category. Right, but you're not. And I don't think that that's true. I think that because it's such a taboo subject, people think it, it it's like a bigger red flag than it it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like sometimes if you do it you're like well i'm fucked for life and that's just not true it's something that you can also just like get help with and Mm -hmm. and move past yeah so um april i think that you i don't think that you are going to cause anything negative by showing your scars i think you will probably only well i think that there might be i mean that i think that's a little unrealistic there could potentially be pushback from parents like you know people have different opinions of this type of thing but I think that overall in the big sense of the world, and I think it's a positive thing and I think it's yeah. very brave. And I think for you personally on your journey, it's an important thing to get to a place where you uh, don't feel the need to hide your body and your past. Yeah, I think I think it'll only in the end bring positivity. Yes, but I, I think it's naive to say that not that some people won't have an adverse reaction yeah, to you it. You got to have answers ready. Yes. You have to have re- like a thought out answer reason ready. Um, you mean to explain the scars, mm-hmm. but also... But to explain to the parents, too, why you're doing it. 
Well, I think that while you're doing it, it's not like, oh, I'm doing this to teach your kids a lesson. I think it's saying this is my body and it's hot out and I'm wearing a T-shirt. Right. You know, like I don't think that you need to justify why you're not hiding a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. I just mean have that ready too. Like have that pat answer ready too. Totally. I hope that this helps. If you uh, want to ask a similar question or a question about why men don't put this lid down on the toilet. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're a 1980s comedy podcast, so let us know. <laughs> Send your international question to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Coming up, we've got a juicy interview with our guest, Jess Bendinger, all about Ooh. the mob. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Hello. The questions are about to be as tough as the mob. <laughs> that was very clever. Did you like that? Yes. <laughs> um, please welcome our guest, Jess Benninger. Did Hi, I say that right? Jess Benninger, yeah. Okay, great. And yeah. we were talking briefly that that went over well in high school. Yes, Benninger, Benninger over was the Oh, S. no. No, yes. Uh, because well, they couldn't. We're positive here. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. You're flexible. What? <laughs> did you have a, they call you something in middle school? No, no, no one cared enough. Really? I got gaby dumb. Oh, I've what? gotten uh, yeah. I've gotten rat skin. Oh before. no! Who cares? Rats are cool on smart. Yeah, kids are. Jokes on you, small children. <laughs> <laughs> so Jess uh, has a prolific career. She wrote everyone's. I assume everyone's favorite movie. Bring it on! Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Not- I take that assumption to heart. Thank Truly you. Truly, get out of here if I, that's not your favorite movie. I don't even understand the uh, toothbrushing scene. Remains oh. my only idea of what love is. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, she's worked on Sex in the City. She's worked. With Katie Holmes bringing uh, first daughter, first daughter, to, yes. to life. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. These yeah. are all like just straight out, straight out your childhood. Oh no, I know, because I do, I do minimal research on guests. Sure. And then as uh, I, I opened your Wikipedia and started to drool. So, <laughs> um, but that's not why Thank we you. have you here. We it's have the nicest you here. thing anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> that you made them drool. Yeah. Um, so you have a brand new podcast of your own. I do with my best friend no less oh what what is that like it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) i'm inspired i took a ticket from your uh oh well thank you what a took a ticket wrong metaphor but yeah but Uh, we but but we wanted to ask specifically about what the podcast is about because we i love crime i I love love, true crime well we Mm. love hearing about crime we don't love crime (laughs) no i love crime okay (laughs) (laughs) um and your show is about the mob it is which i I am obsessed with. I went like I when I was in Boston. That was like all like The Departed came out the oh, same year I moved oh, to Boston, shit. and yes. so that was like you know obviously ever huge for me. So <laughs> what what made you want to start? Like, what's your interest about? What made you want to start learning that about That is this? a great question. Yeah. It all started when Michael Seligman, my co-host, he was entrusted with this box of letters from the 1950s that were in a deceased friend's storage unit. And he opened them up and was like, what are these? And said, Jess, let's look at these. And they were letters written by drag queens in the 1950s. Who can resist that? And then they kept mentioning Club 82. And we started looking into Club 82 and we found it was the premier drag club in New York. And it was run by the mob and run by a woman. It just kept going like, boom, boom, boom. So I'd say my mob... I was not a mob aficionado before this at all, but I was so drawn to her story and this idea, like, of doing woke history, of trying to kind of course correct a really dry narrative about true crime, mobsters, fedoras, crime. Like, wait a minute, there were other people there, and Mm -hmm. what are their stories? So we're kind of trying to course correct history a little bit. Because they don't show the women as being part of the mob, really, in media, ever. never. It's usually like they're the wife and they're upset about the mob stuff. Right. Or they're the mall and they're fooling around. They're the mistress or they're the dead body. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So to see somebody with kind of agency and running her own side hustles (laughs) while this – in the gig economy of the mob. uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was really – she was irresistible to us. So we just started going – we just fell down the K-hole literally of what is this story? Who is this woman? What the hell is going on? Wow. So she, uh, so she's a drag queen herself. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, no. 
she's a woman who um, employed drag queens. She kind of saw a, a market opportunity and exploited it. So yeah, she, so this is what I'm asking. Why would the yeah. mob own a drag club? We have to assume our listeners know nothing about what's going Great. on. So let's, let's, let's start, start at there. the beginning. Okay. Yes. okay, so who is she? So Anna Genovese was married to the head of one of the five families in New York, Vito Genovese of the Genovese crime family. And, the you know, look, Prohibition outlawed alcohol. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when Prohibition was repealed, then they decided on a new kind of prohibition in New York, and that was basically, it's called sexual segregation or gay prohibition. And long story short, what that means is if you were gay, you could not get a drink and you could not gather. Sucky. Really? Yeah. yeah. Super sucky. Yeah. Super, super sucky. So, so how would that work? A bartender would just look at you and think, not for you, sir? Well, what happened was the mob saw an opportunity, like they did with Prohibition, and said, oh, this is illegal. Let's pay off the cops and create these spaces mm-hmm. where people can get drinks and not get hassled. Oh. So the mob exploited the law to yeah. their financial benefit, and uh, the gay community would gay community was allowed to gather and party. Wow. Yeah, they were there. It was mostly based on look, to answer your question. (laughs) They were just rounding people like women with short hair and stuff. Like they were just like rounding. No drinks for you. Yeah, Yeah. basically. Like there's, there's, um, it's like Stone Butch Blues, I think, talks about that a lot. That they would just kind of like hassle queer people that looked queer, basically. I read that book in my transgender studies class in college. Oh, my God. How fun. That is, that's it a fun really class. Cool. That's a, a really fun class. class. Yes. Who was your teacher? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it made an impression. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> what has it been like doing this research project? Because I know most of what we do or most of what I do is, is like scripted, right? So you know that you're like working towards an ending. But like how does it work to do a podcast where you don't know what – what you're going to figure out and if it will be satisfying in the end for the listener. How do you build the plane as you're taking off? Yes. 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 (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. It's been super exciting and super scary at times. And um, I think what's been amazing to us is how many people have cooperated. I think at the beginning we were like, oh, God, this was so long ago. Is anybody alive? And does anybody want to talk? Are they willing to talk? Are they scared to talk? And so that's been great having 80-year-old drag queens who worked for Anna talk to us, 90-year-old drag queens (gasps) who worked for Anna talk to us, and just... You know, it's at the end of their lives. They're like, yeah, let's let's just let's let's talk it it out. Let's get into it. So we have some great stories from them. Her granddaughter, who, if you listen to the show, in episode three, we get coaching from a real-life PI from the serial show on HBO, and he tells us what to do to kind of reach out to a relative. So we get a relative. Her granddaughter talks to us. Her granddaughter talked to you? Her granddaughter, yeah. a fucking get. Yeah, it was. Oh, my God. It's super fun. Did the granddaughter know all about this? Yeah, she knew some of it, not all of it. And so she got this 24-page dossier at work that said, you know, confidential. And she was like, <gasps> you know, and she called us back and she's like, I idolized my grand, my Nana. I'm so excited to talk to you. Wow. And that it's so cool to be like, oh, my God, these strangers care. Like these strangers really care about this stuff, this lost history. Thank you. I hope so. I think that's how she feels. She's super, she texts us and like sends us heart emojis. And oh. we have a very sweet non-reporter journalist relationship with her. It's very like... Like found family. But also the drag queens, too, because I imagine their history is just erased. Yeah, that's been a real motivator for Michael and myself is really to restore the narrative and complete mm-hmm. it because it is super fucking incomplete, to yeah. be honest, right? Did Anna just see this as an opportunity or was she more open than her peers? Like, what was her relationship like with the drag queens? That's a great question. I mean, she they she commanded a lot of respect, and she ran that place, per, you know, with an iron fist. They called her the Dragon Lady, so <laughs> she for sure had um, commanded a lot of power over everybody, and was not somebody you wanted to mess with. But as you'll see in episode five, if you listen, Anna was maybe trying to solve her own problem. Oh, what do you mean? That's an I don't awesome. Know. Holy shit. You'll have to listen. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But also just tell us. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a... Uh, uh, that's it's a, a spoiler. That's a hell spoiler. of a twist. It's a hell of a twist. <gasps> Solve her own problem. What could it... I'll what? tell you after. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, what? She's in it to win it. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. She's in it to win oh it. Oh, my God. <laughs> the mob is an interesting thing, right? Because we think of it and it's like, oh, this is bad. But also, they've done good in a lot of communities, or they did over the years. They, like, kept crime low in the areas that they were 
in charge of, you know, like it's sort of a murky thing. Yeah. So what is your opinion of the mob sort of in general in that time? That's a great question. And I went in thinking one thing and I now have a different opinion. So I went in feeling very judgy, Mm -hmm. very like just looking at the hit list and the body count, which is real. And let's not minimize it and let's not be sensationalist about it. It's, It's bad. And... Now I am blown away by the level of networking and organization they had in place back in the day. So I'm calling them now. They were like the internet before the internet. (laughs) The way they were able to communicate and deploy information and get shit done really quickly and efficiently and effectively was why they outpaced government and why they outran the FBI. They were so – it's called organized crime for a reason. they're organized. They were super organized. And I have to say I am super impressed, which I didn't expect to ever say. But I I have a different feeling about it. It's like, wow, they really looked after each other. Mm -hmm. They took care of each other. They also punished each other mightily and um, permanently. But – the level of networking and the level of sophistication is pretty bananas. Yeah, I mean, because in a way, they're their own government. Mm-hmm. And so it's like acting like, oh, our government never has casualties. But our government has casualties all the time. I mean, yeah. it's, it's different, but like, it's not like our government's running perfectly either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is tough because it, it does draw on these like very masculine, like stereotypes of, of strength and toughness and like, the cliches you know, people cliches and like people i know like in boston people were really scared mm-hmm. like really scared of whitey bulger and really scared of the mob mm-hmm. so it is like this mix of like yeah it is it i, I don't and, and you don't want to root for the fbi either it's really a lot mm-hmm. no it is <laughs> like, i'm afraid of the police like right you know, exactly like it's, hard. it's like what there's very few things in power that are ever not scary. Exactly, yeah. This is why it's such an interesting area. In screenwriting, I call it universal emotional real estate. So it's places where people instantly have a reaction. Mm -hmm. And when I say mob, you instantly have a reaction. Mm -hmm. So to me, what's fun about that is I can then subvert it. Right. Right, because everybody has these really clear black and white feelings about it. It's like, oh, great, let's go play. Mm -hmm. Let's go blow that up. And, And, oh, I don't know. What if we could add some redemptive power of healing to a really scorched earth genre mm-hmm. of true crime and mob, mafia, organized crime? So that was that's what I like to do is like blow shit up a little bit, mm-hmm. like socioeconomic inequality and cheerleading skirts, <laughs> um, abuses of power and authority and leotards, right? So you you actually, I think, can get people thinking about it in a new way when you wrap the medicine in entertainment. Absolutely. So she – so <clears throat> they were letting – uh, their wives run like what do you mean like how how did she yeah. come to run something because I think like or was it more common than we're, we're often told that the women were running stuff no she's well that's a good question I think there were for sure women running bars and saloons and, and who were in <clears throat> family businesses or entrepreneurs in their own right back in the day Anna was born into the mob she was born in Little Italy her family is the name Patillo is kind of mob has great mob adjacency okay. historically so I think I suspect what happened was she's born into Little Italy she sees all the suffering and poverty she sees the people with the nice cars and the outfits and maybe has a family member already there and kind of sees a path, mm-hmm. marries a mobster at 18, Oof. has a kid with him. He is quickly whacked. Oh, wow. Um, and then she has a second husband who is Vito Genovese. Mm-hmm. And I think they picked each other, or he picked her probably, A, for her beauty. She looked like the silence, uh, the the film star, not silent, uh, Hedy Lamarr. She's oh, quite a beauty. wow. And I think she, she graduated high school very young. She was super smart. And I think he just saw in her an yeah. equal mm-hmm. and somebody he could really get shit done with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Did you, were you able to uncover stuff about their marriage? <clears throat> yes. The granddaughter talks about the love-hate relationship and the explosive quality. It sounds pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, but she says she thinks they really loved each other. Oh, wow. And you get uh, – the granddaughter – like, you get out of the mob. You don't have to. If you're born into the mob, you don't have to stay in the mob. Correct. Okay. So the granddaughter's like, you know what? Not for me. Oh, is it is a nurse. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is a nurse living beautifully in obscurity and is such a lovely, sweet person. Right. Like, you just – yeah. Do you- so – oh, sorry. I was going to say, so how did she start running the um, – I Bar 86? But club 82. Club 82. Yeah, I think, well, there was a club before that called the 181. So if I had to make up a story about what happened for Anna, I think she saw an opportunity to make not just money, make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. These clubs were making $4 million, $5 million a year back in the day. Wow. Whoa. So I believe she, A, had um, 
saw this market that was mm-hmm. underserved in the village. And, and also, one thing one of our historians tells us is the village now is an epicenter of gay life mm-hmm. and pride and Stonewall, and its its historic value is widely known. Right. Back then, she talks about that it was really the girls' neighborhood. The guys moved in later, but that the girls ran the village. And oh. the suffragette movement was largely queer, yeah. Lisa Davis says. And so the suffragettes kind of were the village. And so huh. if you live in Little Italy, close to the village, and you're opening a gay bar, mm-hmm. it's going to be largely for the girls, perhaps. So I- I'm making this up, but I think she saw a market opportunity. Yeah. She exploited it. They could pay off the cops and not have to have a liquor license necessarily. They could do it illegally and have a huge profit margin. And she just kept parlaying that. I think she just kept doubling down Mm -hmm. on market opportunities and saying, let's do this, let's do this. And her brothers ended up being partnered with her in these businesses. And I think she um, exploited, shall we say, Mm -hmm. that market and that time and place in in New York history and in American history. It's funny how often these figures are like doing the what we would perceive as the right thing now when you look back and it's kind of like, yeah, they were helping gay people like find a place to gather, but like they were also like, we're not like here. Like we were, <laughs> right. we're making yeah, money compli- off of it. You know what it's I mean? It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. Like I, in the research, we were reading stories about the stone. I think it was the Stonewall or a bar near the Stonewall, and like they didn't have fresh running water, and there was a Stonewall huge, didn't, didn't no, have water. and there was a huge hepatitis outbreak. Yeah, from people drinking dirty glasses. Mm. It's like ew, yikes. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, eventually the mob. Uh, the mob and the gay community come to blows, and Stonewall is where that the Stonewall riots mm-hmm. was kind of the match. So where was the where was the club in uh, in New York? Club eighty two is on East Fourth Street, I believe. I might be getting that wrong. Okay. Um, there's a couple clubs. One's on Second Avenue, and one's on East Fourth Street. But yeah, they're East more East oh, Village. Oh, East Village. Yeah. Okay, interesting. But they were super well attended by like the by uptowners. It was like a <laughs> it was like let's go slum downtown. Yeah, I was gonna say go slum downtown. They were very popular, but straight folks like to come down and see the freaks, right? Yeah. Back then, so they. So my dad used to say. My dad used. To to talk about going to like gay bars or like black bars to be like just to seem edgy. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, you're so edgy. You're so cool. We got this audio from a um, a performer named Buddy Bubbles Kent from the Lesbian History Archives, and she was a drag king. So yes. she would wear men's clothing, and she made so much money. She owned houses and wow. cars out of the city. Yeah, she. It was a money spinner for her. Oh, my God. And so we have some of that archival tape in the show, and and it's just incredible hearing her talk about what it was like. She says the village was like Israel to the Jews for the queer community back then. Oh. Yeah. Do you have any knowledge on, like, when the mob started to lose their power and why that happened and the shift? In New New York back then? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not an expert for sure, but I know explicitly, like, the 70s, there there was a big— as the families, as the FBI started, as as J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. came out of power, so the Kennedys launched this attack against the mob in the late 50s, early 60s. That was the beginning of the end. RICO, uh, RICO Act went into effect, which was wire t- legal wiretapping. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of factors contributing to their, the loose of that stranglehold that they had for so long. But during this time when she was running those clubs, was, was it the height of it or were they losing power? Or? That is, it, was the, it was right in the crosshairs. So okay. she's running them, you know, the 50s through the 60s. She's working in them. So it's right in the crosshairs. So the Kennedys are elected. You know, JFK is mm-hmm. elected in 1960, assassinated in 63. Vito, her husband, dies in 69. So she's right in it. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So so um how do they let a woman be the person in charge of something? Well, I think she's Vito's wife. Yeah. So in mob hierarchy, she is the queen to his king. Oh, okay. So she ha- does have some power. And we were told like at weddings that were for nieces and distant cousins, she would have prime position. <laughs> and uh, relatives who weren't mobbed up would be like, why is that lady? Who's that lady? Like, why does she have so much power? But she really did have quite a bit of status. So we okay. know that. Nobody's going to say no. Her husband was out of the country fleeing a murder charge. She's the queen of the head of the family. Family oh, we missed in the part where he was out of the country oh, fleeing sorry. a murder charge. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to listen to the full podcast <laughs> to get that. Yeah, Vito fled the country, and so she was left to her own devices, and mm. that's what she chose to build. 
Wow. That's what I'm going to choose to build next time I'm left to my Do own it. devices. <laughs> Just the largest uh, underground queer club yeah. in New York City. Why not? Yeah. You can do it. I have faith. <laughs> I believe you. in you. Before we move on to our next segment, what like what is the biggest takeaway you've gotten from doing this show? Whether it's like personal or about this world or, or investigative journalism? Yeah, I think uh, it's been really fun to work in a different sandbox. And I think it's a good reminder for as a creative person and to other creatives, like, Go, go where you're curious. Just mm-hmm. let your curiosity guide you. You don't know what's gonna, what fun things will happen. And also getting to work with my best friend. As you got, you know, mm-hmm. it's so fun working with a friend. And we have a shorthand and an ability to um, collaborate just from our friendship that makes it all so fun. It's- and it's like a nice twist. It's like, wow, we found these letters. I wonder what this could be. It's like and, a natural progression. Yeah. It is you, a natural progression. And he's directing a documentary about the letters, which will come out next year, by the way, called okay. P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. And that's how the letters were signed, because if you were gay, you couldn't be outed. And yeah. so you didn't want any documentation. So that's been and fun, too. it was too. completely ignored. Yes. yes. Yeah. Do not burn the letters. <laughs> okay, I'll put it in this box. Very, <laughs> completely ignored. That's labeled letters to be burned. <laughs> Would you like to play a game called Hypotheticals? I would love to play Hypotheticals. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to give you and Gabby, our two contestants, some scenarios. You can ask some questions about the scenarios, and then you'll tell me what you would do in that situation. Ooh, okay, great. I love it. Wonderful. Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? After 12 years of marriage, you find out that every time you have sex with your partner, they are secretly watching Bring It On through a device device the government has implanted in their brain. They cannot become aroused without it. Would you stay with this virtual cheater? Wait, so you're having sex for the entire run of the film, which I assume is two hours? Wow, Um, 90 minutes, 89 minutes. Comedies aren't two hours. Um... Yeah, uh, no, it's they just like however long the sex lasts. Just the toothbrush scene. Yeah, it's just the <laughs> toothbrush scene over and over. Um, no, it's just uh, Eliza Dushku's introduction, which is the best ever. <laughs> ever, ever. If that if it was just when she does the cheer about moving from Los Angeles, then I'm completely fine with it. <laughs> okay, because to me, erotic. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I love it. Yeah, I I. I have to be okay with it. It would be career <laughs> suicide for me to not be okay with it. So I'm going to say I'm okay with it. Look at those residuals you're getting every time you have sex. You yes. don't feel a little weird that they never told you that the government implanted something that, in their so brain? That, well, that, that part is weird. That Are is they weird. like a, is it a kill switch? No. Okay. They're just beta testing some stuff. <laughs> huh. I that find, is I really stuff. like it if I am getting residuals. By the way, that's an an extra, you know, if they've connected it to Bitcoin somehow and I'm like automatically yeah. credited. In a way, I love that. you've become a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'm enabling some You're kind of You're making money every time you have sex with your partner. Yeah, I guess so. Right? Yeah, I guess so. Would that make sex me a prostitute work or is work? Yeah. Yes. That's true. I guess you're right. Or, am I <laughs> or a, you're a porn star. Am I a pimp? Because I've created the medium by which the sex Whoa. is happening. I don't know, but I'm opening some career opportunities. Okay. For yeah. you. you are. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, okay. I'm going to say that I stay. I stay. Well, it's a good thing you stay because when the revolution comes, your partner is leading the forces. Because of the chip? Because of the chip, yeah. <laughs> and the revolution is bring it on based or no? Uh, oh. The uniform is cheerleader outfit. <laughs> I love it. That's not dystopian at all. It also makes it a little more cheerful, a cheerful yeah, dystopia. totally. And it's clear what side everyone's on. <laughs> Bravo. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Yeah. Mm. Since becoming the first daughter of the United States. <laughs> okay, I'm sensing a theme. You are the president. Your only child, the first daughter, has been super bratty. So you decide to have the FBI fake kidnap them to teach them a lesson. The plan backfires when your daughter manages to escape by murdering four officers. Oh, my God. God. But she discovers her true potential and goes on to run the CIA. Are you a terrible parent? Four people are dead. (laughs) Uh, Jess? Wow. I love this. This is, am I a terrible parent? Four people are dead. Yes, because she got caught. If she got caught, you're a terrible parent. If she didn't get caught, is that a terrible? 
That's well, no, what she's I'm not charged or she's anything charged. because she believes that she's been kidnapped. Okay. So it's self-defense. It's Got self-defense. it. Okay. But those people are dead. <laughs> and they did work for you, the president of the United <laughs> yeah, States. Yeah, this is a real conundrum you've placed in, uh, on Thank the you. altar of this game. I like I it. I was very impressed by her ability to take out four grown men. Is that wrong? Well, no, she's she's unleashed her potential. I think in self-defense, you'd what would you rather have, your daughter dead or... But alive you've as a parent. Staged this kidnapping. Oh, oh that's right. right. I forgot about <laughs> it's that a part. fake kidnapping, and it's FBI officers that she's murdered. But I'm, I'm honestly still impressed. <laughs> like I'm happy that. Like I'm impressed with my kid. I'm a terrible parent, but I'm impressed with my kid. Yeah, that's fair. Terrible parent. Terrible. Yeah. Also, like, look, those guys went into the FBI. It's a dangerous job. You're putting yourself on the line every single day. You expect maybe you might die. Yeah, that the first daughter might murder you. <laughs> okay, well, not that right. exact scenario, it could but we can also cover it up. I'm the president. <laughs> okay, Dazzling. I like some, some loose morals, but I like the support of the daughter. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the mob. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're on a mob da- episode. The morals are going to be loose. Dazzling mind bender. I like it. Thank you. Yes. Our final game. Are they an alien or just rude? While out to dinner with some new co-workers, one of the women only speaks using sex in the city quotes. (laughs) If they can't think of a quote that works for the situation, they just do one of Carrie Bradshaw's classic squeals. (laughs) Okay. Is this person an alien or just rude? (laughs) I'm I'm so sorry that I don't know enough about Sex in the City to understand the squeal reference. She squeals constantly. Wow. Right? Yes. I love She's always like eat. Wow. I know no, I, I I know their names. Uh, is she an alien or is she rude? I'm going to say maybe both. Okay. And I, why? Oh, why? Well, if she has I, well, your question again has has me a little at a loss. Um <laughs> Why? Well, squealing is not squealing is weird if you're just doing it randomly, right? Yeah. And we'll tell that to Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> she is a scripted character. Right? Um What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I love that uh, documentary, Sex in the City. <laughs> that's a spoiler. I yeah. <laughs> um I love Sarah Jessica Parker. I love her performance. Let me go on the record as saying, but anybody mimicking that is feeling a little, mimicking that without empathy and without pause sounds a little troubling. I'm going to say rude. Well, Gabby, you're wrong. And it's an alien who's learned all about human culture through (laughs) Sex in the City. (laughs) Are they doing different voices like for each quote? Like they're doing all their voices or no? Um, no, they don't have the ability to change their voice in this human body they've mm. taken over. Wow. Yeah. But don't worry. They're just here for research purposes. <laughs> their research is going poorly. Yeah, because it's very limited to sex in the city. I love this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and playing our game. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. You guys where, are awesome. Thank you. Oh, Aww, I'm, I'm blushing. Oh, my God. Uh, where can people listen to the podcast and find you? Yes, they can go to mobqueens.com or we have some fierce Instagram game. They can Ooh. go to at mobqueenspod on Instagram. And I'm at jessicabendinger.com. Amazing. Thank you so much uh, for shaping my childhood. <laughs> thank you. Stay tuned after the break. We'll be talking about hope just as a general concept. (laughs) So sad. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 Baby. Baby. This week, I wanted to talk about hope. Mm-hmm. Because on previous podcasts, we've sort of been talking about the current political climate, mm-hmm. and I have said that I don't think that we will be able to defeat Trump in the general election. Sure. And I know that your reaction to that has been like, but we have to be hopeful that we will. Yes. And so that kind of got me thinking about the power of hope and how important is it, and can it be used detrimentally? Mm. Um. And so I just don't want to even put the bad juju in the air. But if you speak it out loud, it gives it power. But it also means that you're unprepared for things. But 
I you, like to uh, me, I think, and and like we'll move on from the specific example because I'll I'll talk it into the ground. But like for me, saying that Trump isn't is going to win re-election is me saying so. Let's focus on the Senate and Congress. And for me, it's I'm hopeful. My hope lies in that yeah. we can take take that. Yeah, Whereas but, if I just was like, I hope we win, da, 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 who cares about local government and state government, then you suddenly, whoop, yeah, we're, fu- we're double fucked. Okay, but I also think that there's negativity to saying that Trump's going to win. Like, I feel like we need, like, obviously, I care about all of it, but like, we need to, I just think it's like, why not be like, yeah, War- Elizabeth Warren's going to be the president. Like, why not be positive? Why not be like, be like, oh, thank God we're going to defeat. I don't know. Like, because then to me, it's like us, if we're, ho- if, if we think that that's going to happen or we assume that's going to happen, then we're ignoring like how. But not assume, like actually do, do the work and canvas and go like do the stuff for whoever gets the nomination, you know? I guess in this specific in- instance, I'm like, R- Russia is literally interfering. Like, okay. it's not a normal situation. So we're up against tons of adversity. Mm-hmm. And so if it's just, like, acting as though, like, it's, you know, business as usual, a regular free election, then I feel like we are being a little delusional. <sighs> like, I can feel hopeful that somehow the government stops Russia from interfering. Yeah, but yeah. even that feels like a stretch. But in, in other parts of my life, I, I I think hope is very important. I just don't want to say he's going to win because I feel like then we're putting it in the air. And it's okay. like making it, we're like say, we're speaking it into existence because you, you uh, attract to you what you say, what you speak into existence. Like you attract. Do you truly think that? You think if you say Elizabeth Warren's going to win enough time, she's going to win? No. Because we all thought the, Hillary Clinton was going to win. I know, but you have to do, you have to do. You have to do the work and stuff. You have to actually obviously be like canvassing and promoting and like vote and like go and do the stuff. But I just don't think it helps anyone to sit around and be like, I I don't know, not even sit around. I just don't think it helps to out loud be like, he's going to win. I think it absolutely helps because I think it I think it reprioritizes people to understand how important it is to focus on on Congress. Because I think otherwise it's like everyone just cares about that. And I think we need to like really put our support behind like strong Senate candidates and strong House representatives and like really push for that. But we can do both. I I understand, but in my my experience, there is a certain amount of money and energy. And normally, you know, like 80% of that goes to the presidential campaign. Yeah. And I'm saying if we're being realistic, I think that like... 40% of that should go to the presidential campaign and we should have 60% going to Congress. But, you know, like it it changes, it changes strategy. I guess I just don't think, I don't think it behooves anyone to act like it's already lost. I don't know. I mean, I guess to me, there's like different versions of hope, right? So I think what's really important right now when things are so terrible is like the hope that the, that morality and good people will win Mm -hmm. that like in the long run like most people are good Mm -hmm. most people have good intentions Mm -hmm. and love each other and that in the end good will will rise above evil Mm -hmm. and i think that that hope is so important right now because Mm -hmm. with climate change and with the current uh political cycle and yeah you know like it's easy to slip into despair and think oh the world's ending right and so like that type of hope i think is like so crucial whereas specific hopes about specific things Mm -hmm. can i think be a little more dangerous because for me right like right now i'm like i'm waiting to hear back about a bunch of things and if none of these things go through then i literally have no income and no no career other than this podcast and so i'm like i hope this happens i hope you know like yeah and I, all day long in my head i'm going i hope this happens i hope i get this i hope this happens oh mm-hmm. my god please let me get this i need to get this i have to get this i hope i get this and like i have to be okay with if that doesn't happen but there's a certain level of control you have where while you're waiting you can do other things or you can plant other seeds not really you always can you always can um i mean uh, sure i mean i can do another pit like uh, I don't know. I'm getting, I'm like at a point in my career where I'm probably like, if one of these things doesn't go, like I'm seriously considering 
plan B. Mm-hmm. And so like I have to figure out I have to like get okay with plan B and I have to figure out what plan B is. Whereas I feel like if I just lived in this place of like hope, 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 like it'll be a year from now and I won't have had income for a year. Okay. So I don't know. And it's interesting because overall I am an optimistic person. I'm a positive person. Yeah. But I am trying to come to to terms with like also being like rational in reality. Sure. I mean, I I tend to live I think it's great to have a little bit of delusion. Um, because I think that's the way that you are successful. Uh and I think it's not a negative thing to if you're really good at what you do or if you're you're really hopeful about a relationship or whatever. I don't think it's bad to be like to to have a little bit of like I don't know what the word is, confidence or arrogance or whatever of being like, yeah, I'm going to do I'm going to like I have something that other people don't have or this relationship has something that other relationships don't have or whatever it is, like something where you it's okay to be like happy and confident and be like, I hope this works out rather than being like, I don't know, no relationships work out. So this probably won't or like, I don't know, why am I more special than this other person? It's like if you if you're really good at science, if you're really good at engineering, if you're really good at writing, whatever it is, like you're allowed to be like, I'm better than other people and I should get this job or I'm I'm better. Like I Sure, but I I guess to me it's I like I hope that I get this because I I'm glad that like I'm doing I don't know, it just feels more I positive think, to be hopeful. Yes, but I I I guess like um Again, it comes down to the specifics. So for me, I think it's better for me to transition my hope into I hope that I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I hope that I figure this out. Mm-hmm. I hope that no matter what happens, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Versus I hope I get this. I hope yeah. I get that. You know, like I think that that and that's almost more like a, a living in the moment thing. Like I mm-hmm. think so so much of my life has been built on like hoping that something happens and Mm -hmm. like especially in our industry I'm like well this one call can change my entire life Mm -hmm. I hope I sell this I hope my agent calls me at this time because then my entire life will be different I hope I hope I hope Mm -hmm. I hope and then I'm not present in the moment because I'm just so obsessed with what could potentially happen and how that could change Mm -hmm. and so for me it's trying to like reconfigure it into like I hope I continue to be doing as okay as I am right now or like mentally or you know what I mean like it's interesting because I I, I sometimes give the hope too much power. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a little bit of a measuring game. I just view it differently where I'm like where I'm just like everything like it'll work out. Like I'm sort of like it'll work out or like the hope of of being like, yeah, like I'll work on this or I'll sell something or like it'll have it'll like it'll have to work itself out. Like I I feel like often what has benefited me is the little bit of like delusion and hope because I think people are attracted to positivity and they're attracted to like people who are succeeding. So if you present yourself as if like, but that's stuff- different than what I'm talking about. No, because I'm not it- saying that I'm, I'm not saying that I'm saying I'm not going to get it. Like I would never like for, for when we were on our tour, like I would never be like, nobody's going to come. I just don't, I like, we'll try to, I'll be like, Oh look, like so many people came and like, I don't know. I, and I would present it as like, I would never talk about the tour to people being like, nobody's here, nobody's coming, nobody's buying tickets. Like, I would never say that. Like, if someone was like, how's the tour going? I'd be like, yeah, I hope I hope it packs. Like, I think it's, I hope it, I, in my mind, I would be like, yeah, it's going to be, be packed out. And then I would be like, I hope it's packed. Like, I don't know. Like, I would never kind of, I know to you, you view that as lying or delusional or whatever. But like, to me, it's like, if it, it doesn't, it doesn't behoove anyone to be like, I don't know, no one's coming. Like, I have a friend on Twitter who was, like, her, her book just came out, and she did all these tweets being like, my book is failing, nobody's buying my book. And I was like, why wouldn't you be like, wow, like, I'm getting some press for it, I hope people buy it. Like, the reframing of it. Like, why wouldn't yeah. you... But like, that, to me, is is a positive point of view and a negative point of view. It's a little different than the concept of hope. Well, because my hope is people are going to buy tickets and it'll be fine. Yeah. Or, like, people are going to buy the book. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Like, but if you start saying the negative things out loud the way that this girl was tweeting or, like, it just it just um, is self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And I don't – I'm not saying that the that you swing to the opposite and you focus on the negative. I'm just saying that there is some danger in having your future hang on something out of your control. So yeah. it's a, for me, it's about getting to a place where – that this this present is okay if it's also the future. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
I think we're kind of almost talking about different things. If you have hope, you still have to have the action too. And like if you, you know, if you have hope and you're like, oh, I'm waiting on this one call or whatever, uh, there's got to be other stuff you can do in the meantime. Like I think there's like for any, for anyone, if you're, you're, if you're like, I hope my relationship works out, it's not going to work out if you don't also put work into the relationship. You can't just have the hope. Right. You have to do like the other stuff too. You have to like actually put in the work. You can't just be like, I hope somebody hires me to do to, uh, you know, landscape their lawn. I really want to be a landscaper. <laughs> and it's like, well, if you want to be a landscaper, you got to like put that out there. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting point of view that I'm taking because normally I am very hopeful. Uh, I guess it's just me reframing what type of hope that is. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes we have to see what's coming. And I think a big issue with Democrats is that we, like, have been ignoring how massive these problems are. Well, we fight. We do, we because do the Because we're things. so hopeful. Yeah, and we but think, we fight and we do the things. We don't fight well. No, but I'm saying for me, like, obviously, like, I'm not just – it's the same thing. It's like, well, I'm not just going to say I hope and then not do anything. I hope she wins. I hope uh, Roe v. Wade isn't overturned. I don't know. I hope the whole the half the Supreme Court gets in a weird submarine accident and they all die. <laughs> That's what I hope as well. I think yeah. we can all get on board with that specific hope. Yeah, I don't know. You know, like I, I, God, by the time this comes out, half the Supreme Court is in a suit, <laughs> and I have to like be like, I'm a psychic. No, they arrest you. <laughs> oh yeah, they're like, she clearly planned this. <laughs> I don't even own a submarine, you guys. Uh huh. I don't! <laughs> Melissa, do you want to come on in and tell us your thoughts on hope? So are you a hopeful person? Um, I think for the most part I am. Yeah? But I think that I agree with Gabby when she's like, you have to put action into the hope. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I, I feel know like you're I'm not being, saying I that. I feel like I'm having, you're having, launching a fake news campaign against what <laughs> I'm saying. I'm not saying, I just think, and I'm, I'm possibly our listeners will, will side one way or the other, as is the crux of the show but i think that there's some people who do get nervous and say oh you can't speak stuff into existence because it's bad juju and there's other people who are like no you should i think it's just different types of people you think he's gonna win right yeah yeah well but then don't say why are we saying it in the air because, because you, you have, have to, to prepare yeah. you have to get you can't just be delusional i'm not about being it. delusional i'm saying okay that's great but let's like tr let's like do no our, i'm gonna I'm just, do I'm, everything in my power yes. for him not to win yes but the realistic part of it is that he's going to win because of the meddling and Okay, just we're stupidity. saying the same things, but I'm just a superstitious and I wish you <laughs> yeah. wouldn't do it. And it makes me nervous. <laughs> and I don't like it. It makes me sweaty. You're like punching mirrors and walking under ladders and holding black cats. See, to me, voicing things happening gives them less power. Mm -hmm. So like if I say, oh, I'm not going to get this thing, then I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get this thing. And then how do I... How do I continue? How do I Opposite. Act? I need For opposite. For that, I would be opposite. Yeah. I would be like, I'm going to get this thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then when you speak it into existence, I think it gives you more power. But it's that's like a vision I'm being, board. I'm being like realistic, though, because I know if I put in the work, then I can get it. Yeah. Melissa's a champion. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Melissa's a winner. And uh, we are all uh, under her rule. Yeah, I agree. So what, what did we learn, at least? I learned that um, women were running drag queen clubs for the mob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that Also that, like, you can just be a guy who has a friend who leaves you, who dies and leaves you a storage unit full of letters from drag queens from the 50s. What magical life are you leading? Hey, you never know. It could still happen to you if you hope enough. <laughs> I know. It was so cool. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it is. Like, every episode, I feel like I'm just saying, this is so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We'll like put that on crazy. the poster. Yeah. JBU, it's fascinating. <laughs> oh my god! Funniest part? Um, funniest part was, I guess, all the wiki feet discussion. Yeah, that's exactly where I had it, and like most disgusting because I hate feet. You hate oh, feet so much. I'll show you my feet after. I might change your mind. Win you over? No, oh, no. <laughs> what was your What was your favorite part? Um. I uh, enjoyed the hypotheticals that I wrote specifically to movies and projects that she'd written. <laughs> she seemed very tickled by that, too. Jess seemed to like that as well. Yeah. I liked theming them. I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Yeah. All right. We're doing this in reverse order, but let's finish off with our rating. Okay. I rate it, um, I rate it f uh, six out of six mob 
queens. Uh, very original. <laughs> I, I plugged it. I plugged their pod. I rate it 9.99 underground nightclubs. Ooh, Sexy. You heard it here first, folks. We got a good, good rating. <laughs> but also, you've listened to the whole episode to hear that. So. <laughs> and, we've, and we're apparently running an underground nightclub. Uh, if you want to rate the show, please leave a review or give us five stars or tell your friends. We're trying to grow it. Oh, God. Subscribe. Leave an Apple rating. Hey, I'm hopeful that you will leave a rating. Mm. How hey! about that? There we go. Thank you, Jessica Benninger, for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Melissa D. Motts, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Nasty? Still, with a question mark? <laughs> Just spicing it up. <laughs> oh, my God. Stitcher.